You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical and empowering conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. How will creators and tech companies grapple with the decline of journalism, media mergers and acquisitions, a dysfunctional digital advertising ecosystem, the shift from linear cable to streaming, and many other factors have led to more than half of United States counties having no access to or limited access to local news, according to Northwestern. This is happening at the same time as Pew Research Center reports that 32% of people in the United States between the ages of 18 to 29 are regularly getting news from TikTok. That's up from 17% in 2021. It's not just a trend affecting young people. 16% of people between the ages of 30 to 49 regularly get their news on TikTok, up from 6% in 2021. In short, as journalism jobs decline, more and more people become reliant on platforms like TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube for their news. News created in large part by creators who rely on journalism. Creators play a vital role in platforms and in the economy at large. They're the faces you see when you open TikTok, Instagram, or YouTube. But many creators rely on the work of journalists. Popular streamers spend hours discussing deeply researched stories inspired by journalists' work. And if journalism jobs disappear, how will creators and platforms be impacted? What struggles will content creators have developing new content? What will that mean for communities hoping to fill the void where local news no longer exists? This conversation comes days after the S&P 500 reached an all-time high, supported in large part by companies like Meta and Google. Of course, these are companies that benefit greatly from the work of journalists and journalism outlets. Now, there's a whole other conversation to be had about AI and journalism, but that's for another day. Today, Jamie and I will discuss the relationship between creators, platforms, and journalism, the broken economy of digital advertising, and the outlets giving us hope for journalism's future. If it's your first time listening, thank you for tuning in, and welcome back to everyone who has listened in the past. Make sure to follow the Digital Void podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You following us allows us to continue to produce this as it really helps with our discoverability on podcast platforms. If you're listening on Spotify, you can leave us feedback in the app. This week's question is, what gives you hope about the future of journalism? Further, we want to hear from you even if you're not listening on Spotify, so please feel free to write us your thoughts or respond to us on social media. You can write to us at hello at digitalvoid.media. Now, here's this week's conversation about creators, journalism, and platforms. I've been thinking a lot about the loss of jobs in journalism in 2023 and now at the beginning of 2024, and I've been guided by one central question, which is that in 2023, 8,000 jobs were lost in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada across the journalism industry, according to the Press Gazette. And so far in 2024, that number stands at more than 650 jobs. So there are a lot of reasons behind this, whether it be artificial intelligence, venture capital, poor management, etc. But my question is less focused on the specific reasons why those jobs in journalism have disappeared, and more so on the creator side. Jamie, 
if journalists go away or if there is no content being produced from original journalism, how can influencers and content creators expect to have original material to work with? This is a sad story that I think has happened and has been on the horizon for for probably a half a decade now. And the advent or like the release or the hype around AI has really, really changed the way newsrooms and hiring agencies and journalism has decided to move forward with as an industry. Let's start back a little bit and like see where this comes from. I used to teach journalism. Part of teaching journalism was teaching how to use Twitter. <laughs> and and Ryan Broderick actually talks about this quite often. And I don't know, for, for those uh, the the old heads out there, if you notice Ryan's uh, username, Ryan hates this. It's because he was forced to create accounts in his journalism class. And it's similar to like a lot of the ways that journalism professors who didn't really have a grasp on the industry used to just force our students to like say, well, you got to do it. This is what's happening. New media exists. And therefore, you have to interact in those spaces, not just traditional spaces. And I always made sure that students understood the context in which journalism itself exists and why it's the fourth estate and what part of democracy is necessary for journalism to operate. So we have a civic reality or at least a civic agency that enables us to make the right decisions. That's what it like really comes down to is making sure that we're informed enough that we could operate with agency, with freedom, with a real informed mind. And of course, that's high minded and potentially a little utopian. But it is what journalists actually do. One of the things that I always worry about about journalism and the role of journalists is the inherent part of our society and system in which we're told that we're quote, illiterate to some things like financial illiteracy or legislative illiteracy. And that's because systems at play, including academia, put things behind their ivory towers or their walls and speak in a very specific language that excludes the majority of the people. So the role of the journalist is to take that information, translate it for the public so that they become informed citizens. And it's a beautiful way of thinking about what it means to become empowered. And then in 2022, late 2022, OpenAI releases their GPT project or their their public OpenAI projects. And very soon after, we get these fear-mongering things about AI is going to write articles and they've been doing this. Now, Now, to be clear, this has been happening for years. Financial news has been written by AI in some cases, weather reports, some things just AI can take that that brunt. But I think the attrition happening in the journalism industry is the same thing that keeps happening in waves, which is that CEOs and, and upper level organizations and the C-suite of these news organizations don't actually know what journalists do. They don't actually know the use and the value of a journalist and how much work it goes into making sure that they're doing the right thing. And very often they learn a little too late. And so, as you mentioned, the numbers, like the sad numbers, like these are people we know, like we know them personally, like that have been laid off, that have been removed from their seats, that no longer go to the newsroom and have been pushed into a space of freelance work, which they're still doing phenomenal work, but they just no longer have the benefit of support the ability to have a, an editor or a publication stand by them and stand by their research. They're pretty much just in the space where they have to take the risks and tell the stories on their own because they're still upholding their values as a journalist from integrity, seeking the truth and trying to tell good stories. And it is a sad shame that like all of this happens. Now, what I think you're leading to, which is like where we intersect here, is that we're just at this point where internet culture reporting and digital culture reporting was starting to become much more mainstream. And finally, news outlets and agencies were like, well, we need people who cover this beat. We need people who tell these stories. And then lurking in the corners, people like Bill Ackman, check with tons and ton of money who write checks, decide, well, maybe I won't write those checks if you allow these people to do this. And there becomes an existential fear that 
while, while he may be applying that to education, becomes an existential fear among how do you raise money for news agencies? And that type of checks and balances are something that reporters really need the balance to report on that, on putting uh, truth to power. But what happens when power becomes unregulated? What happens when power becomes such an existential threat that reporters who are making just a living wage don't have the ability to have that support? And so I want to ask you a question back, which is that, is there a problem that could have been stopped before we get to the point where the journalists were in this situation? Like, wh where did we take a wrong turn and allow this type of vulnerability to happen? I think we can use BuzzFeed News as a case study for the model of how all of this went wrong and that BuzzFeed News was not profitable from the start. BuzzFeed News was supported by pseudo partnership between BuzzFeed's business model which was a click farm supported by Facebook's algorithm. And the type of listicles and content that BuzzFeed became famous for and the types of videos, whether it be the exploding rubber band watermelon or you name it, it is that model that helped to generate a ton of revenue for BuzzFeed was ultimately an attempt to try to build a profitable newsroom. Unfortunately, news on the internet never spread or specifically the type of journalism that BuzzFeed News was creating was phenomenal. It was not the journalist's fault. But ultimately, the business model of BuzzFeed never grew to support either the infrastructure or the specifics of the work of the journalists. And this is a dynamic and an interplay between journalism and social media platforms. The dynamics of social media platforms themselves do not incentivize hard-hitting investigative journalism. And we've seen a lot of great outlets over the, the last few years fold. We just watched another outlet fold this week. The Messenger shut down only a few months after it launched. You have a number of nonprofit newsrooms like The Markup that are able to thrive, but that's due to funding. That's not due to subscription revenue. And so the economics of this are broken and tech companies know this. And the ad-driven click farm platform economy of social media platforms has made it such that when we think about why a journalist would be hired by a company, this model of scale simply does not work. Subscription revenue works. And so if you're not the New York Times or if you're not the Washington Post, then it is incredibly difficult for digital newsrooms to thrive in a model that is outside of or external to this. And it's a devastatingly sad thing. You're absolutely right. It's a, such a good thing to remember. The, like, the real reporting that goes in depth and really gets to the bottom of the story, that does it's not scalable. It's like there is a lot of work, a lot of time that journalists have to do reporting where they're not doing a post every day or they're not creating clickbait or click farms or content farming. And it, like there's that, that trope online that's like, oh, I really enjoy my journalism article when they show a screen grab of like seven ads and three lines of writing that appear on the screen while the rest of the screen isn't bombarded by pop-ups and floatovers and subscribe here and what's it, what's it not. And what agencies or outlets do want, you're right, is something that they could create clicks and ads. And if you're doing one long form piece, it's going to be resource intensive to the outlet that doesn't work in their space where they need this constant flow of information that's going to keep and support them. I do like your example of these smaller places because it's like, yeah, they're funded sometimes by organizations or even educational spaces, but that's not a sustainable environment either. But I, I want to go back to your, your first point, which is like, we know the danger, this point, of not 
reporting on internet culture in physical space. Like we know this, we, I mean, the insurrection has proved to us that the mistake there was that many internet culture reporters and disinformation experts were writing about January 6th before it happened. And then of course, afterward, it was like, who could have known? And it's like, well, if you read the articles, the actual published pieces, they were, it's all actually said it. It was, it wasn't something that just appeared as a spontaneous event. It's internet culture that crossed over into physical space, which again, is a decade late after we were trying to say that these aren't two spaces. So 10 years, and we get this environment where we need to have culture writers describing what's actually going on. Now, of course, you know, there's always the great, easy information that's that's there, which is like, how, what's the meme of the week? Or what is the, what's the story to be written about? What's the backstory to be written about? Like the little miss or Mr. Memes or, or the girl screaming the guy's ear. And that could be just a weekly beat if you wanted to. That's just content. But when you need to tell the story, when you need to tell a story about how people are exploiting the web or, or creating like hate messages that are being encoded and pushed into mainstream spaces, you need a trained journalist to do that. But even more so, to respond to yours is that TikTok or the world or, or people who are making their so-called lives in the influencer space are people who either are doing enough cool shit to have their own stories. That's why I always like try to explain like, it's like, I just don't do enough in my life to be an influencer. So there are influencers out there who are doing enough cool things. That's their, it's their content. Jamie, aren't you going to get it in on the return of the day in the life blogs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if I had... Which is so, happening right now. Imagine if I did that. Like, imagine if I woke up and started recording my day and people were like, we just saw this. This is this is your yesterday. It's like, yeah, it's just, this is how it is. And so that's <laughs> that's every day for me is pr pretty similar. I get up, I work, I, I type. We've noticed in trends that Gen Z has fallen in love with news information that comes from TikTok or the translated information of these influencers are basically telling about the world by just reacting to or reading the news and then telling their version of the story. Of course, that leads to some problems, which we'll talk about at another point. But your question was really apt, which is like, if we don't have the real information, how are young people going to get the information that they should be asking? Like, they're not... One of the great parts about TikTok's information system is that they're being delivered information that they didn't ask for. A lot of traditional journalism are questions how did this happen? Where did this happen? Why is this happening? And the journalist goes out and answers those questions. In a push system where we're being pushed information, where the, the feed is playing, we're not pressing play, but the feed is automatically playing, you're getting pushed information directly to you. If there's no source data for that, they're going to have to fill the gaps. They're going to have to do either the research on their own, which again, then opens the door to bad actors. That opens the door to people who have the ability or the absolute knowledge of how to manipulate news information systems or news flows. And the loss of journalists in mainstream environments and the cutbacks of, of journalism in departments is a huge problem for information in general, for objective reality, or just people who are going to exploit the system. We always notice that like you click on some sites and it says, oh, sorry, this is your last subscription or sorry, this is the last article you could read. But you know what's free? The Daily Caller doesn't ask for that. You know, a lot of places that consider themselves news, and I'm putting that in scare quotes, are places that don't have any subscription fees because they are funded, heavily funded by what we would call dark money or interest money that is distinctly loaded with an agenda. 
And that agenda is designed for political maneuvering. That agenda is designed specifically for misinformation that is designed for radicalization. And those things don't have checks and balances. They're disguised as news and regurgitated by influencers. So what you need, what you really need is are people that do the work, that do the research, that find that type of reporting and ask the real stories and ask the questions that aren't comfortable and put these things out that allow the people in power to be held accountable. One example I like is uh, to use is Brandy Zadrozny of NBC News. And Brandy's work is incredible. And two of the pieces that I use in my classes every single semester, one is about news deserts in Pennsylvania. And that story, I think, is incredibly important because it's a story about a small town in Pennsylvania that's representative of many news markets. And in this small town, there is no news. So does that mean people just don't want news? Like, does that mean people are just like, well, fuck it, no, no news necessary? No, they want to be informed. So where does it lead? It leads to people finding their information in their small town Facebook pages or Facebook groups. And that becomes the information flow. And in Brandy's piece, she talks about what happens when that becomes politicized or if somebody puts in something that's controversial. And it's up to the, quote, moderator to decide what is information to share with the public. And this is often heaved onto citizens. People like moms in the town or people who are interested in making sure that people are informed. But what happens when they're radicalized? What happens when they don't know the difference between right and wrong or the nuances of internet culture, internet literacy, where something is embedded with horrific dog whistles? Like, how do they know? The public just doesn't know. That's worrisome. And they turn to these platforms like Facebook or meta-owned platforms or TikTok-owned platforms to fill the void left by local news, by regional news, by national news. And I can't help but notice that there is a line goes up mentality about all of this in that if you look at basically the last 12 to 15 months, stocks like Meta in the last year, up 170% at the time of this recording, 170%. Microsoft is up huge amounts thanks to the AI boom. The stock prices for these companies, specifically Meta stock, Microsoft stock, Netflix stock, all digital technology and media companies are doing very, very well. At the same time, the primary drivers of what makes these platforms special, whether it be the technology or otherwise, is going to evaporate, right? Content creators need things to cite or source from. And at the same time, what we're looking at is a vicious legal battle happening between the New York Times and OpenAI right now as well for perhaps the unethical and unlawful use of training data to train articles, right? To train its large language model. And so the, how do you navigate that interplay where if these outlets are vulnerable or go away, even legacy outlets like the New York Times, how do you begin to navigate that? And when will these platforms realize, oh, shit, we actually have a vested interest in journalism existing? That is a too little, too late answer. We know the answer because we've actually watched it several times. But I do think that platforms don't realize the damage they've done until long after the damage. And this is this goes back to 2019 when the algorithm was corrected. And I'm putting that in quotes because they're black boxes. We don't know what that means when they correct an algorithm to stop producing or pushing content that comes from the far right or Christian nationalism or places of that our line goes up. 
things that scale, things that result in clicks, things that are like show that there's growth on a platform. And those things are problematic and, and troublesome. And so when that happens and we hear young people getting depressed or we hear about people falling down rabbit holes, that's when they correct the algorithm, right? And that's that's their ability to say, oh, we noticed we did something wrong, but you can't go back in time and, and fix that. The other article that I, I like from Brandy Zadrozny is Carol's Journey, which is a, a story that's really important because talk about BuzzFeed News, Ryan Broderick and BuzzFeed News and several other outlets, Mashable included, reached out to Facebook or the meta products before they were meta about these problems they were noticing in their algorithms where a new user might fall down a rabbit hole right away. Like they were signing up for Facebook and the first few pages they were shown were far right or QAnon adjacent blogs. And that's within minutes of signing up as a new account. And like, so if you imagine that's a that's a beta test by a journalist who's figuring this out and saying, hey, this keeps happening. You can imagine the thousands, if not millions of humans that sign up for these apps and fall into those traps right away. And so of course, Meta's PR consistently wrote back to these journalists and said, I don't know what you're talking about. This is not happening. You're, you're obviously, they always play the victim. Like they're always like, I can't believe you're trying to scorn us for something that we have no control over. This is just how users operate. And after the Facebook papers were released and the leak happened from Francis Hogan, Brandy Zadrozny put together a piece that I really enjoy called Carol's Journey, which is Meta's test of an AI bot or a sock puppet account named Carol. And there were several sock puppets, but Carol fell down the rabbit hole and Meta was aware of the algorithm pushing people into radicalization. They were aware. And this also goes to the fact that Meta, which again comes back to even the C-SPAN uh, co congressional hearings from this week, which is that they are aware of things that hurt young women in particular, 13 to 16-year-old young women on Instagram. They know, they have enough data. Facebook Meta products have enough data to see somewhat into the future. And that means they're aware of the past. They are aware of what they're doing. And for journalists to ask these questions, and for them to deny it means that they have enough security and enough confidence that they don't have to say it because this information will come out. So the only way to put them on their back foot is journalism. That's it. You have to put them in this place where they are aware that they are accountable to their public, to their shareholders, to their people. But when you're talking about investors and you're talking about people at the highest level, line goes up, man. If, it, <laughs> if it's throwing money in the pocket, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter if your, your people are becoming fascistly oriented or they're interested in what is it now it's like there's a certain percentage of people that think violence is the answer to politics it's like that is something that is slowly cancerous inside of these environments and journalist has to tell the public well look this might be happening but we could correct this by informing the public in a way that is compassionate is caring is is a way of telling people this is the true story behind it and so these layoffs yeah, and I'm not conflating layoffs to fascism, but I'm saying that they are related. This is something that happens when you lose the public sphere and the ability to understand this information from a structural place. And I, like I said, this means the support of a publisher, the support of an editor when you do information, when, when somebody like Bill Ackman, who has billions of dollars, pushes back. You need an editor to say, we stand by this. This is our reporting. This is how we know we're, we're right. And if you don't have that, then interest groups have the lead, they have the power, and they're going to feed that directly to TikTokers. They're going to create their own outlets. They're going to create their own information flows, and people will just repeat. And it's not just, like I said, I'm not blaming TikTokers or influencers or anybody for spreading misinformation this way. I'm saying, like you said, your premise here, which is they have to get their information from somewhere. And it's if we don't have that, 
then they're going to find that information one way or another. And it will be unsourced. And at best, like our conversation with Steffi Sow two weeks ago, it just becomes an infomercial. Everything yeah. is just an infomercial. And if we don't want TikTok to just be a place of brand takeovers and <laughs> uncanny Pop-Tart dances at, at ball games, then Jeez, we need okay. accountable journalism. Yeah. And so I think that, that leads us to the last, like the bright spot. But I could see sites like For Media, which re relies on users to pay for a subscription so that they can sustain reliable reporting. And they are their reporting isn't just reporting. Their reporting is in-depth analyses of internet and life culture, things that are tech. And tech is, is culture. Internet is culture. So there's no way to separate the two. So when we report on tech, it's hard to say this is tech reporting because it's really just culture reporting or it's just life reporting. And that type of thing, those criticisms against those systems are what keep us informed. And I have to say, I support them. I think other people should support them. I think it is a valuable place to make sure that we're placing our money directly into that. It's it's slightly different, though not completely different, than paying your subscription fee to New York Times, where you're not, it doesn't go directly to the reporters. It doesn't go to the outlet. It goes to their investors or their top line or their bottom line. And I think that's that's a model that I would hope, not just that, but like some sub stacks or some newsletters that really do supporting work like Garbage Day, who does internet culture writing embedded and so forth, where they rely on subscribers. I think that needs to be celebrated as well. And I'm with you, the subscription model being celebrated. Overall, I would love to see more groups like 404 Media emerge. I think Defector is another great example of this model. Uh, Gita Jackson, as part of Aftermath, which is a great games publication. And hopefully these are the models that will allow journalism to evolve. But ultimately, journalism needs to find a stable place in this ecosystem or else the consequences will continue to be dire. And when you commented that the loss of jobs is not directly related to fascism, what you're really saying is it's the domino meme. It is all part of the same ecosystem. Yeah, it is all connected. There is no outside. Yeah, we have, and you can't turn that off. That last domino, you can't go back to the first domino and not tip it. You're right. That is, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so we have to we have to place our our interests in. If our interests are watching influencers tell us the information, then we really have to understand the pipeline and understand our responsibility to support that pipeline of good, solid information that helps us become better, more informed users of the internet and better, more informed citizens in our civic life. Thank you so much for having this conversation, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void Podcast. Remember to follow and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.